Thank you, worship team and Shiju. We're really blessed at our church to have so many gifted men that have a heart for Christ and the gospel. I want to encourage you, uh, Shiju is going to be sharing in a couple weeks. If you look on your current on the 17th, just a few Sundays from now, uh, he's going to be sharing more about successful evangelism. Austin has really been leading us well in equipping the saints. That's what the Bible says, that the church is to equip all believers to do the work of ministry. And Shizu has a real passion and gift to share the gospel, so I know you'll benefit from that. Um, just want to mention a couple other things. Pastor John's study on Micah will begin on the 12th, and our divorce care begins this Tuesday night. So I want to welcome you to that uh, if you're in need and would like to attend that. So this morning, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis chapter 42. If you don't have a Bible, just feel free to raise your hand, we'll, we'll give you a Bible. We're looking at the life of Joseph at this point in the book of Genesis, and we're seeing God orchestrating all of his circumstances to accomplish his purpose. God has a purpose to move the nation of Israel down into Egypt. Right now, though, we've got some serious dysfunction in Joseph's family. And I think I've shared this with you before, but whenever you hear people say, oh, I'm from a dysfunctional family, it's probably worthwhile to remember we're all from a dysfunctional family. Sinners are dysfunctional. What we often mean by dysfunctional is the extreme, right? There are extreme dysfunctions where there's very, very painful things happening. But at the end of the day, we all come out of dysfunction. That's the whole point of the gospel. If we weren't dysfunctional, we wouldn't need to be born again. Jesus puts out this recall, you must be born again. Why? Because we're broken. Our sin causes us to hurt people, to be hurt, and to live in the context of shame and guilt and, and trying to posture ourselves in selfishness and bitterness, and often those painful things show up in our family. So this morning, what we're going to find is that God is going to orchestrate the circumstances, not just to get Egypt or, or the children of Israel down to Egypt, but he wants to change the sons of Israel and bring healing in their relationships. Remember, the last time we saw these 11 brothers, they were so hard-hearted that they had planned to let their brother starve in a pit, then sold him for slavery, right? That's pretty hard-hearted. Sat down and ate a meal right afterward as though nothing just happened went home and lied to their father and said, hey, listen, you got to understand, Dad, he was torn by animals. Oh, heart's broken, right? Living a lie, right? That, that is stone cold, right? And then watching their father grieve and refuse to be comforted, right? Interacting with their dad on a daily basis, knowing that he can't get over his grief for the loss of his son, and they have this big secret. He didn't die we sold them for slavery. And so God's going to begin to step in and begin the process of change here. So begin with me in Genesis chapter 42. This is, I, I really, really felt God speaking as I was studying this and reading different commentaries. A lot of things that I've really learned and changed in this, and so I hope it'll be uh, led by the Spirit to bless you. Somebody said to me this morning, I feel like you're talking right into my family. I'm going, don't shoot the messenger. I don't know what's going on in your family, but the Word of God is alive and powerful. So let's begin in verse 1. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? So first of all, remember that 
Joseph now was second in charge of Egypt. They were the only nation that had, in the providence of God, planned for this famine. So now they're the only ones that can distribute food. Children of Israel are starving. Jacob's on CNN. He goes, hey, check that out. You can go get some food. Now, look what he says to his sons. Instead of saying, hey, guys, um, listen, I heard some good news. There's actually food available down in Egypt. He goes, why are you staring at one another? Now, again, that could be a figure of speech, but it may, it may sort of be a hint at the, the relationship that was already fractured here. We're going to see a few things that sort of give me the impression that Jacob might not have really believed his, his sons when they said, oh, poor Joseph is dead. Later, he's going to say, I haven't seen him. So, he says, behold, I heard that there's grain in Egypt. Now go down there and buy some food for us from that place so that we may, not, may live and not die. And then 10 brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. And you're like, 10? I thought there was 11. <clears throat> but Jacob didn't send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers. For he said, I'm afraid that harm may befall him. Now already we're sort of seeing this pattern of dysfunction. Remember, Joseph hugely was favored by Jacob. He was his favorite child, way over the top, which then caused the other brothers to have deep resentment towards their dad and towards their brother. Now it's a redo. Jacob's wife, Rachel, only had two sons. And in a weird way, it was as though these were really, in Jacob's mind, these are my real sons. He's literally going to almost act like His other sons aren't even his sons. And so we see this pattern repeating itself. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now, a couple things to understand. Canaan was at least, at least, if you were hoofing it, a week's journey down to Egypt, okay? Not an easy journey either. So these 10 brothers with donkeys, they're not just going down to get a sandwich or a loaf of bread. They're going down to get a bunch of grain to last a long time. Now, as anybody would know, you have to have some sense of border security. Our country's divided on how to do this. But it wasn't as though they were just saying, come and go as you please. And so people were, merchants were streaming in from all over the world. People just coming because they're starving. And Joseph was over all of this. It wasn't like he interacted with each person. Now, how much do you need? But in the providence of God, look, look what happens. It says in verse 6, Now Joseph was ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. So he happened to interact with this group. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Now, the first thing I want you to note here is my initial sense was that Joseph was like, paybacks are tough, baby. This is going to be good. I really thought that that Joseph was being really cruel. Why is he doing this to his brothers? I've come to look at this completely differently. Remember, Joseph had the spirit of God in him. He was prudent. He was wise. He had suffered. He was careful. Joseph was testing his brothers. The last time he saw these guys, somewhere between 13 and 17 years ago, we're going to find out 
that he was begging for mercy and they just said, be gone. He has a plan that begins to emerge in his mind to find out, have these people really changed? Verse 8, but Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they didn't recognize him. Now, this is going to be repeated over and over again. He recognized them. They didn't recognize him. So Joseph had a power over them. But one commentary said something that was really interesting. They said, Joseph, in a certain way, is a microcosm of God. He is going to orchestrate circumstances because he knows things that they don't know, and it's to test them. And in some ways... Joseph is kind of doing what the Lord does. Not in every detail, but this is what God does. He knows things that we don't know, and he tests us. The Bible tells us that. And he tests us to help us to grow and to change. And so, as he orchestrates this, see the hand of God, but see Joseph sort of functioning as a, as a microcosm of knowing what we don't know. I remember reading a quote years ago by, by Tim Keller on this. He said, if we truly knew what God knew, we would worry a lot less. And I thought, wow, that really hit me. Because that's the point. Joseph knows more than they know. So, so they're struggling. God knows more than we know. So sometimes we're like, why are you doing this? We have to know there's things he knows that we don't know. Can we trust him? So, verse 9, Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them. In other words, remember he dreamed early on, you're going to bow down to me. And now before his eyes, they're literally bowing down. He's like, wow. But he begins to set a plan in motion. He says, you're spies, verse 9. You've come to look at the undefended parts of the land. They said, no, my Lord, but your servants, we just came to buy food. We're all sons of one man. I think they were saying this because they're like, look, if we were spies... Spies would never come as a group of brothers. You just don't do that in war. You don't bereave parents of all their kids by, by putting them on the front line together. Who would, who would send all of their sons? We're not spies. We're honest men. Now, wow, I wonder, wonder if Joseph probably went, <coughs> really? Your servants are not spies. He said to them, no, you've come to look at the undefended parts of the land. We know how enemies work. They, they infiltrate and they find out our weaknesses. You're just looking for a way to come and steal this grain. They said, hey, your servants are 12 brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today. Now, imagine how that hit Joseph. He probably didn't even know he had a younger brother, right? So, youngest. But then watch this. And then um, we have another brother. Uh, he's no more. Now, man, I don't know how he did this, but if that came up and I was him, I would have gone there quick. Like, fascinating. What happened to him? <laughs> you don't say. I, I, I can't believe that he didn't even touch that one. One of our brothers is no more. Oh, okay. But he's prudent. Prudence has a filter. Prudence thinks, Right? Joseph said to them, it's as I said, you're spies. By this you will be tested. Now here it is, the testing. It's going to say it twice. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Now at first I'm like, okay, I see what he's doing. He just wants to meet his younger brother. No, no, no. Way bigger than that. 
He says, send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be, here it is again, tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you're spies. Now you stop and you go, no, wait a minute. They could just go get anybody and say, hey, here's our brother. They didn't have DNA. They didn't have Ancestry.com. Well, Joseph wasn't dumb, right? The FBI and interrogators, they know how this rolls, right? You separate them and you start asking questions, right? If these guys are brothers, you know, who's your mom? Where do you live? What about this? We'll find out whether this is a poser or the real deal. But then Joseph does something really interesting. Verse 17. So he put them all together, verse 17, in prison for three days. Now, when you're reading the Bible, just pause and think, okay? These 10 brothers are sitting in prison now. And what do you think they're talking about? They're not playing cards. They're not going, go fish. They're, they're sweating bullets, right? And God is probing into their past. And we're going to find out that it's very likely that they had conversations about what they did to their brother. That probably during those three days, they were like, you know what? It's coming back to haunt us. Man. And I, again, at first you're like, man, Joseph is just punishing them. No, he's not. He's not punishing them. Joseph spent years in prison. Three days might be good for them. They don't have their, their cell phones. They can't, they can't tweet and Twitter and, and get distracted by anything but just sitting there and reflecting on how did we get into this place. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. Now he's just putting a little bait out there, like that wouldn't be normal for an Egyptian to say that. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, Go carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you won't die. Now, I could almost guarantee you right now that Joseph already had in his mind who's going to go to prison. Uh, I'm going to pick who's going to stay here. I, I, I'm pretty sure he would have picked Reuben, and here's why. Because in that culture, the oldest brother was in charge. The oldest brother was responsible and I'm pretty certain that over the years, Joseph probably, though he resented all of his brothers, probably resented Reuben the most. Because Reuben probably, in Joseph's mind, could have had the influence to say no. See, we don't get that in our culture, older brother, younger brother. But in that culture, the younger brother's word had a deep weight and authority. So Joseph is about to have his doors blown off. Because all these years, he's probably thought... Reuben is the reason why my life was ruined. Look at verse 22. Or verse 21, rather. Then they said to one another, Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we wouldn't listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Man, that verse opens up a huge window of emotions. See, we just read, and they threw him in a pit, and they sold him into prison. But this verse sort of takes us back to that moment, and we see Joseph weeping and begging his brothers, don't do this. Come on, are you good? Come on. And, and they harden their hearts, and, they, and, they're, and they're thinking, I'll never see this kid again. He's gone. 
and they just wash their hands and go sit down and have dinner. And now they're reliving that painful experience of watching their brother beg for his life. Right? And now the guilt's starting to, to come back. And that's what happens when we suppress our sins. He that covers his sins won't prosper. But look at verse 22. Reuben answered them saying, didn't I tell you? Don't sin against this boy and you would not listen. Can you imagine what went through Joseph's mind when he heard that? So it wasn't Reuben. In fact, Reuben said, now comes the reckoning for his blood. Look at verse 23. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. Just want to throw out a little tip to those of you that have two languages, because it happens, right? You, you revert to that, to that language with certain people. Bah, 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 they don't understand. Never assume, right? Bad idea. So these guys are chattering away. No idea, because there's an interpreter there, that Joseph speaks fluent Hebrew. He knows what they're saying, right? So God is giving him a window. Verse 24. They didn't know Joseph understood there was an interpreter, and he turned away from them and wept. But now in his mind, as he turned away and he's weeping, who's he going to lock up? Well, if Reuben's not the main guilt bearer, Simeon's next in line. He's the next oldest. Plus, Simeon's brutal. Don't forget what Simeon did earlier in the book of Genesis, and I'll, I'll allow you to, to go and find that out. But later on, when Jacob gives his blessing, he never gets over Simeon's brutality. So he says, look, verse 24, Lock this guy up. So he takes Simeon and bound him before their eyes. And then you're going, man, what's Joseph up to now? Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and restore every man money in his sack and give them provisions for their journey. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with grain and they departed from there. So imagine these huge sacks of grain. All ten brothers had these huge sacks of grain. But Joseph says, put their money back inside the bag. And you're like, what? Why would he do that? Man, why is he giving them grain for free? Why would he give them their money back? Test. One, two, three. Testing. One, two, three. What are they going to do with this money? Are they going to own up to it? Or are they going to just go... Uh-huh, we got some money, right? So he's going to see how they handle this. Verse 27, as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Like, what? You ever have one of those things where you're like, this could not have humanly happened. And I want you to understand that there's two ways to look at life. Most people only view life horizontally, right? They look at circumstances and they go, why, why me, that stinks, right? Or the Bible talks about walking by faith, not by sight, right? So as a Christian, we have the mind of Christ and God is teaching us to renew our mind and not just to go, man, that stinks, why'd that happen? But to always look at life and say, hmm, how's God involved in this? And so, Look what these guys say, verse 28, when they see that money and the brother says, my money has been returned to me. Behold, it's in my sack. They don't go, yeah, big, this is great. It says their heart sank and they turned 
trembling to one another, saying this, what is this that God has done to us? See, I'm not sure that God was on these boys' radar all the time. But change often happens when God shakes up the basket a little bit. And now they're starting to go, wait, this is getting eerie. Why, why did God, God do this to us? Like, what do you mean, why did God do this? Do you think God just actually magically put that money in there? Right? But that's all they can, can consider. This, this is the hand of God. When they came to their father, verse 29, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened. They said, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us. He, 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 he said, we're spies. And we said, no, we're honest men. We're not spies. We're actually 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. The youngest was with our father in the land of Canaan. And then that man, the Lord of the land, said to us, here's how I'll know if you're honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me. And now Jacob's going, which one? And they go, it's Simeon. And then, and then the Lord of the land said, verse 34, bring your youngest brother back to me that I may know that you're spies. Not spies, but honest men. And then I'll give your brother back. And, and then you could trade in this land. Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed, right? Now, you could tell a lot about a person not by how they act in church. Oh, hi, brother. Praise the Lord. But when something shocking happens, you sort of get a window into people's hearts. And, and, and this could go in a lot of directions. I don't know exactly they were dismayed. Like, they certainly weren't going, yes, we got, we got free grain. Like, they're somehow going, man, my world's turning upside down. Now, now Joseph's heart or Jacob's heart begins to come out. Remember, he's a bereaving, grieving, depressed father. He says, I refuse to be comforted. I'm going to die in sorrow since I lost my son. Notice sort of the blame starting to come out. Verse 36. And their father Jacob said to them, you have bereaved me of one of my children. Now that's interesting, right? They told Joseph, hey, what, we, they told Jacob, we, we found his robe and Adam wants to tell him. But he's going, you bereaved me of my one son. Joseph's no more. And now Simeon's no more. I'll never see him again. And now you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. And then Reuben, he's kind of all over the place. I'm not sure how I would assess Reuben's heart here, but I'm going, I don't even know what to do with this. Reuben spoke to his father saying, you may put my two sons to death if I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my care, and I will return him to you. Now, worst case scenario, Reuben's like a, a, a cruel, twisted dude. Like, who would say, just kill my kids if I don't come back, right? First of all, you're like, and, and remind me how that's going to comfort Jacob. Oh, okay, well, that's really, that's helpful. If I lose Benjamin, I'll just kill your kids, and that'll make things better. So I'm not sure what he was thinking here. But, but I'm thinking probably I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt is that he was being presumptuous. Right, this is like Peter. Jesus, I got your back, man. I'll go down with you, right? I think he was just being presumptuous. I got this, right? And that's always a dangerous place to be when we're presumptuous. Oh, I can handle this. As opposed to going, no, watch and pray because we're all very weak. But Jacob said, there is no way 
This boy's not leaving me. My son shall not go down with you. His brother's dead. Now, now notice, his brother's dead and he alone is left. Wait, what? I thought we're brothers too, uh, dad. Um, so you sort of see this favoritism just coming out almost subconsciously. I only got two boys. I already lost one. You want me to lose the other one? I'm like, well, wait, we're, we're your sons too. He's basically saying, I'll die on the spot if I lose Benjamin. If harm should befall him on the journey you're taking, then you'll bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now, one of the things I want you to notice here, it's like, since when do they care about their father's feelings? Right? They've been deceiving him for all these years. Right? And now suddenly they're starting to have compassion, and this compassion is going to grow. And this is one of the marks of change. True repentance and change will often, the fruit of that will show up in how we relate to other people. So things were just, who knows? Simeon sitting in prison going, I'll never get out of here. Jacob's head spinning, but food drives us to desperation. Pretty soon they, they, they ate all the grain, right? Verse 43, salmon, the famine was severe in the land. So it came about when they finished eating their grain, which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, go back. Buy us a little food. Now Judah here, Judah's really, last time we saw Judah, he wasn't uh, a very upstanding character, right? He's sleeping with a prostitute, ready to stone somebody. And, and so Judah seems to me to be a, God, a man that God's really changing because he genuinely begins to empathize with his father and he speaks some reasonable and sensible, compassionate advice. Judah spoke to his father. He, he solemnly warned us. That man said, you're not going to see my face unless your brother's with you. If you send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy food. But if you don't send him, it's a waste of time. We're not going to go down. The man won't see us. He said, you will not see my face unless your brother's with you. And then Israel says, why do you treat me so badly? Why did you ever tell him you had another brother? But they, they said, the man questioned particularly about our relatives. I mean, it, it was almost like he knew as he was just probing he wanted to know about our father. Have you any brothers? So, so we answered him. We didn't know. How could we possibly know that he was going to say, bring him down? Wow, look, look, at, look at Judah. Judah says, look, send the lad with me. We got to go so we can live and not die. We as well as you and your little ones. I myself will be surety for him. In other words, I give you my pledge. I will... I will be responsible for little Benjamin. You may hold me responsible for him. Nothing about killing my kids. If I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then let that blame be on me before you forever. Now, I always thought that I was kind of clever. I thought I came up with this figure of speech. Sometimes when my wife and I are driving, you ever come where you have to make a left turn and so you want to make sure that oncoming traffic you know, you, you don't want to pull right in front of somebody, but, you know, like, in my mind, if, if the car is like a speck on the horizon, right, like, you just go ahead and turn. But I've said this to my wife more than once. Honey, there was so much room there, I could have turned, backed up, and turned twice. See, I thought I made up that figure of speech, right? Which, again, I know some of the things are going through your mind, and I'll clarify in a moment. But Joseph or Judah says, if we hadn't delayed, surely by now you could have returned twice. We could have been there, back up, been back, right? Now some of you are going, man, remind me 
to be careful if Pastor Tom has his left blinker. <laughs> My wife has seen uh, lost loved ones in accidents, so she's very cautious, and that's great. And, and so I'm not suggesting, you know, if you get a window, just woo, zoom in front of there. Just trying to tell you, I thought I came up with return twice, and here somebody else already came back. Then his father, Israel, said to them, now look at this, if it must be so, then do this. You know what, he, he has this resolution, like, I, I don't know what, all right, but then he's going, look, appease this guy, take some of the best products of the land in your bags, carry the grain as a present, take him a little balm, a little honey, a little aromatic gum, some myrrh and pistachio nuts and almonds, and, now listen, take double the money back, right, just in case he, he somehow he figured out later that you got the money, take double the money back. Perhaps it was a mistake. And fine, take, take Benjamin, take your brother also. Re- arise and return to the man. Now, this is good stuff. Look what, look what Jacob says. And may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of this man. That Hebrew name for God is El Shaddai. You've heard that song by Amy Grant. Amy Grant, El Shaddai, El Shaddai. This is the name that God appeared to Abraham when he said, do not fear, Abraham. I am El Shaddai, and I will be with you, and I will be a shield to you. And surely this was passed on, and so Jacob's faith begins to come out. I've got to give this over to God. And remember, my brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, you belong to El Shaddai, Almighty God. There's nothing impossible for him. And so Jacob resolves himself to this point of surrender. He says, take Benjamin, and if I am bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. Right? I have to put this in the hands of God. So the man took their present, they took double the money in their hands, and then they arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, Bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph said and he brought the men to Joseph's house. Now again, when you're reading the Bible, pay attention to the characters. Who is this house steward? Is he a Hebrew slave? Is he an Egyptian? But, but Joseph had an impact on this guy. Joseph had taught this guy about the living God. And Joseph even had prepared this guy. He says, I want to know whether these guys are going to come clean about the money. So if they do admit that they have the money, this is what I want you to tell them. So here's the steward. He's watching. He's learning about God. He's listening to Joseph. So verse 18 says, now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. It's kind of that feeling you get when you're in line at the airport and they go, could you come with me, right? And it always happens on a missions trip and then you have to wait for three years and I'm, I told you to shave that big beard, they think you're a terrorist or whatever. It's just, there's always something where, but these guys are afraid, like why is he singling us out? This is not going to go well. Why would he bring us into his home? I know what he's going to do. He's going to, He's going to accuse us of stealing that money. He's going to kill us. So we got we to be preemptive. We got to confess before we're caught. Verse 18, the men were afraid. They said, it's because of the money. So verse 19 says, they came near to the house steward and they spoke to him at the entrance of the house saying, Lord, my Lord, indeed, we we came the first time to buy food. And when we came, we opened our sacks and the money was in it. We brought the money back. So, hey, ding, ding, ding. They've passed the test. 
They're honest, okay? But notice that the steward was already prepared. He said, don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your fathers has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Imagine what's going, what? God, their minds are spinning, but Joseph's still testing, testing mode. Then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, washed their feet, gave their donkeys fodder, and they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that he was eating a meal there. And when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present. See, they're trying to appease this guy. Look, we brought you presents. We brought our money back. Now, here's Joseph. He's never seen his brother in his life. Imagine the emotions as he sees his little brother from the same mother. Verse 29, as he lifted his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And with a wellspring of emotions, may God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred. Literally in Hebrew, his compassion grew warm. He sought for a place to weep, and he went into his chamber. And that's the same word that could be used for the prison of confinement. He had to go into the, 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 the silent room and, and sob with, with emotion. But then he washed his face, and he came out, and he controlled himself. And that's hard to do. Sometimes it's very hard to control our emotions. But the Holy Spirit sometimes will give us self-control to control our emotions. And, to, and that doesn't mean crying is, is a bad thing, but, but he knew here he needed to be composed. So they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians couldn't eat bread with the Hebrews for that's loathsome to the Egyptians. Now Joseph has another test and this story just gets better and better. I hate that. We have to, it's like the, the, oh, no, let's watch the previews for next week, okay? So you have to read ahead for next week. But watch this. He's got another test. Joseph is going to seat these brothers in the age of their order. Now, they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. Now, it's always good to have bright, we have bright people in this church when I mentioned this in the first service, somebody came up to me, this dude's like, I said, he goes, I've run the formula. Do you know what the chances are of this happening? One in 40 million. There are 40 million different ways to arrange that, right? And I go, how did you figure that out? And he goes, well, you just plug in, and it was a little asterisk, 40. And I go, what? And then he had some, you know, he's, my little radio shack's going, I, I, Okay. Now, these guys didn't go, wow, the chances of that are 1 in 40 million. Next time I make a bet, I need to... No, they're, they're, they're just like... So you see the hand of God turning their world upside down, testing them, and, and now Joseph's got another test. Remember, Joseph was dad's favorite. Dad always gave him more. Joseph wants to see if these guys have changed. So he's going to give Benjamin more. Benjamin more? Sorry about that. And he took portions to them from his own table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And he's watching them. He's going to do it later. He's going to give them all a change of clothes. And he gives Benjamin five changes of clothes. He wants to see, hey, are you still the scheming, hateful, brutal, treacherous brothers? Or have you changed? You're like, well, what happened? 
Relax. We'll get to that. But I want to mention five things about change because remember this, that the Christian life is a life of change, okay? The first change that we all need to make is we need to be born again. If you have not yet given your life to Christ and trusted him as your Lord and Savior, you can't change. The Bible says a leopard can't change his spots. Neither can my people change. God has to change you. This is why Jesus said you must be born again. You and I are born defective. Our default is sin and selfishness. And we can change on the outside, but we can never truly change unless we're born again. So I got great news for you. When you're ready to change, the Bible says, come to Jesus. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Celebrate that. New things have come. If you're a Christian, you have a new heart with, with new capacities to change and to be free and to grow. But people will sometimes say to me, oh, pastor, my son's on drugs. What's the best rehab? And I go, all of them and none of them. Because if somebody's not ready to change, you can send them to any rehab. They're not going to change. But when you're ready to change, it's not as though there's only one rehab. And this morning, the only way you're going to change is you have to come to Christ. But once we come to Christ, there's things about change that I want you to know. Number one, change often only happens when God tests us. You see, sometimes we know we need to change. But we're not going to change if we could just keep suppressing it and running with the status quo. Hey, it works. I, I, I just ignore that. I just suppress that. I'm just not going to change. And then God begins to intervene and, and he begins to test us. And things begin to happen. And we see the hand of God working and, and we begin to realize, hey, God is calling me to change. So this morning, perhaps some of you recognize you're being tested God's, God's upsetting the apple cart because he's calling you to change. Too often we tell people, God loves you just as you are, and that's the truth. He loves me with all of my sin, but he loves me too much to leave me there. And so by hook or by crook, he's going to test and move in our hearts to bring us to change. So note that maybe this morning you realize and you see the hand of God because he's trying to call you to change. Secondly, I want you to note this, that change starts to happen only when we come to repentance. See, I doubt that the day after they sold Joseph into slavery, that they were saying, oh my word, it's our fault. We saw the agony of our brother. See, they're starting to do what the Bible says. They're coming into the light. And until you're ready to come into the light with repentance, there's no change. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him. John 3.18 says this, this is the judgment. Men love darkness rather than light. Their deeds are evil, they won't come to the light. So I want to encourage you to, to understand that repentance is the ongoing privilege of a Christian. Repentance is something we all have to experience. As Christians, sometimes it's minor. Oh, I, I love Shiji's prayer. Lord, forgive me for selfishness, for lust, Forgive me for indifference to the poor. Sometimes our repentance is major. Like we are way out in left field, far from God. And what we don't need is Caleb's positive encouraging. We need James chapter 4. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to sorrow. Let your joy turn to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of God. Read the book of Revelation. Jesus spoke 
minor changes to some of the churches of repentance and some of the major changes you're lukewarm you've lost your first love repent and so god may be calling some of you there's some major changes need to happen these guys were starting to come out of the light and so that starts with just talking to someone confessing your sins to one another praying for one another you don't have to stand up right now ah but begin the process of saying i want to change i want to repent and as we're discipling others all of us we're a hospital sometimes we're on the gurney sometimes others will speak into our lives and ask us those hard questions and challenge us to begin to change but notice also from verse 28 as they said what has god done to us that change often is prompted prompted when god steps in to work and so ask yourself has god been stepping in in unusual ways in your life recently perhaps that's because he's saying i'm trying to work change in you and then something that struck me in verses 35 to 38 of chapter 43 or 42 was that much of their change the place we often need deep change is in relationships within our own family now, I understand that there are exceptions, that, that some of you may have no family, right? You're not married, you don't have any family. And again, our hearts sympathize with that. That's one of the beauties of community. God brings us into the local church, and we are brothers and sisters, and family is messy. And the hardest place to be a Christian, hands down, is in the family, right? <clears throat> Just this week, I was ministering to a young person not from this church, <clears throat> and I know their family. And as she told what's going on, I said, what have you learned from this? She said, boy, I've learned this. Things aren't always what they appear to others because I see what goes on inside the home. And so for some of you, <clears throat> it's no secret that the place change needs to happen is in your marriage. I mean, you... you, you can you fake the faith in your marriage? And so, for some of you, change might need to take place in a relationship. Maybe, maybe there's a teenager here who needs to change their attitude towards their parents. Be reconciled, come into the light. Maybe there's a parent, I spoke to a parent this morning who was so angry at their child. Maybe there's a change that needs to take place in your parenting where your anger or self-righteousness or pride has brought up a wall or your judgmentalness or legalism or whatever. Maybe it's with a sibling. It's, it's, it's shocking how many people have broken relationships. Well, I don't talk to my brother, right? So change often takes place in the very family where God's saying, hey, this is not healthy. This is not appropriate. And I think we begin to see that with, with God sort of orchestrating these guys are starting to feel bad for how they treated their father. Jacob's starting to realize that he's blaming them and, 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 and bitter in his heart. But the last thing I want to say is this, that Jacob becomes a great model for us when he says, God Almighty grant you compassion, and if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. Because ultimately, change happens when we're willing to surrender to God. Right? Right? Ultimately, he goes, look, this is up to God. 
and, and, and we try so hard to figure things out. Yeah, but if I, if I admit that, or if I do this, and I, but they're going to do this, and then I don't think this is going to, and we always come up with a plan, and God's going, I got a better plan. Give it to me, trust me with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. Stop trying to go, well, I'll only do this, God, when you, when you do that. I'm not going to rehab. I'm not going to, I'm not going to apologize. I, but surrender. Give it to Jesus. With open hands that say, hey, this might, this is no guarantee that if I take the love there, everything's going to be great. If I am bereaved, I'm bereaved. God calls us to surrender, to repentance. And change happens not when we, when we look at somebody else and say, well, I'll only change if they change, right? And so how many times do I hear as a parent, oh, yeah, we've been to counseling, but it does work because they don't listen to the counselor. And, and, I, and let me just tell you from a pastoral standpoint how many times it feels like when people come for counseling, they're both thinking, I'm basically here because they need to change, right? And as long as that's the attitude, there's not going to be any change because it's blame versus repentance. And so I want to encourage you this morning to consider, have you surrendered it over to the Lord? Is your will surrendered to the Lord? talking now to Christians, right? And then as you surrender to the Lord, to bring others alongside to say, hey, can you walk with me in this? Pray for me. I'm going to need some, some encouragement. I'm going to need some advice. I'm going to need some help. We're a community of, of believers. And maybe you have some change that needs to take place between relationships. But it's really exciting. God is at work here, amen? The Lord Jesus is building this church. And he's orchestrating change as we're growing together. And I'm so thankful that many of you are discipling people and, and sort of keep that as a paradigm in your mind. How am I changing? Is my faith growing? Am I walking with God? Am I learning to repent and see my own sin? And, and as I'm learning to be healed by Jesus and be strengthened by Jesus, now I can pour into others and I can ask them hard questions. What might God want you to do differently? How might God be asking you to change? How have you been responding to these circumstances that are making you uncomfortable? And are you showing the love of Christ and the, and the compassion of Christ? Are you bringing things out into the light? So as we close this morning, I want to invite some of you just need to come to Jesus and be born again and get, get saved and, and begin to change. But for the rest of us, let's pray that we can allow God, even as we study the life of Joseph, to continue this process of changing us into the image of Christ. Let's pray together. As the Lord is speaking to our hearts through his word and the Holy Spirit is working, how might God be using your circumstances and your relationships to help you change and others around you? Father, I thank you that you love us with an everlasting love and nothing can separate us from that. I thank you that it's your purpose to complete what you began, to conform us to the image of Christ. But Lord, change can't happen as long as we wear a mask, as long as we try to keep control, as long as we cover our sin. So Lord, bring us all to growing surrender where we allow you to speak to our hearts and to cleanse us and change us i pray father for broken marriages for people who are struggling there's probably 
numerous people here that have a completely different life at home than they project when they're with other Christians. Help us, Lord, to be community. Thank you for the gospel. Lord, just as you prayed for us, that we might walk with Jesus, walk in the light, and that we might show love to others. Use us to change people. And maybe there's someone here today and God's speaking to you. Right now, just say to Jesus, Lord, please forgive me of my sin and change my heart. Set me free. I surrender my will to you. I believe that you died for all of my sins and rose again. Let Christ take charge of your life. And my brothers and sisters, let's walk with Jesus and take his yoke upon us. For his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and we will find rest for our souls. And we thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.